Are you looking to become a leader in clean energy and an expert in clean tech? Do you hope to get noticed in the crowd as you pursue a career in this fastly growing industry? You are in the right place. Join Karan Takar as he invites clean energy leaders to share industry developments, highlight clean tech investment opportunities, and shed light on how you can increase your chances of employment in this high growth sector. We will also discuss the energy transition across key emerging markets like India and explore partnership opportunities for the U.S. private and public sector. After all, this is the Zenergy Podcast. Carolina, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. As we dive into our conversation about your involvement in the energy sector, would like to start with a brief introduction. Could you please share about your career journey and specifically highlight some key experiences and milestones that you feel have shaped your professional growth, ultimately leading you to your current role? Sure. Hi, Karan. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure actually to be here. I think probably what shaped me the most in my career was my my academic background. I'm originally from Argentina and I came to the US to do a PhD in economics and being immersed into academia and all of the methodologies and how we treat the problems in academia, right? Because it's like ultimately trying to find the truth. It's not just getting a few data points and putting a story together, but it's actually like going through the entire literature, getting the best data, doing all sorts of tests uh, to that data, making sure it's not biased, etc. So all of that being so neat about it, I think that really shaped a lot of what I am today. I did a PhD. I really liked writing the papers or thinking about the papers ideas, but I didn't see myself being a professor. So after a PhD, I did a postdoc, which is kind of like an extension of your PhD. And I wanted to figure out like if I really wanted to remain writing papers and immersed in that world. And I think, well, one of the main things that was critical for my current career, career path is that I, I did my postdoc at the Kennedy School, Harvard Kennedy School at the Center uh, for International Development, where they worked with a lot of different countries. And well, particularly, they worked directly with governments. So they had kind of like the research leg and the policy leg. And I was with the researchers, but I was seeing what the policy people were doing. And it was so interesting to me to see that they were actually applying a lot of interesting stuff to programs in different countries. So I said to myself, I think this is what I want to do. I want to take all of what I know and all of my methods and everything and actually apply it to real life. Since then, so I moved into the policy branch. I worked for over three years with different governments, informing them of how to do better public policy, targeting like very specific outputs that they had in mind, like how do we grow faster or how do we diversify our economy? And ever since I've stayed at that 
intersection between academia and policy. So I'm not necessarily a person that will implement the program, but I'm going to inform the people that do implement the program what's the best strategy to do so or how to do it in the best way or even test if the program was successful or not. So that led me to this kind of like policy sphere. And then I worked with the Inter-American Development Bank. I did some work for the World Bank. And uh, while doing that, I entered the infrastructure world. And and that's when I fell in love with green energy. And I said, okay, this is the future. This is what I want to do. And now I'm working. I'm, I'm the research director at Power for All. And I lead all of our efforts in ending energy poverty through the use of decentralized renewable energy. Thank you for shedding some insight into your career trajectory and wanted to ask if you could go back in time and give one piece of professional advice to your younger self, maybe when you were conducting your PhD research or even after during your postdoc, does anything come to mind? Yeah, I would say talk more to people. Because a lot of the things I really liked, I didn't know existed until I actually saw them, right? So I think at the postdoc, one really nice thing is that I got to interact with a lot of people because being at the Kennedy School, you're exposed to everything that goes on in the school. And that was really nice. It's not the case with a lot of the postdocs that you're like maybe like isolated or in the econ department. So I went from econ department to like the more of the public policy sphere and that's when I became more connected and I started talking to people but but I think all along talking to people and finding out what other people do is great to inform your own choices and also I think asking for advice and and, and help when you need it as well because that's something that PhDs normally don't do ask for advice or help and I think I think I should have done more of that and was it through those conversations from which the opportunities to engage with the Interdevelopment Bank and the World Bank came about? Definitely, because you talk to people that know other people and you tell them what you do. It's it's the power of networking that I think it's not, it, it's stressed a lot in some spheres, like MBA people know it very well, but normally more academic people don't. And you're very you belong to a very closed network and, and you don't look outside of that network. And I think we don't, I don't know if people value it. It's just that it's not done or it's not encouraged. And so it's very common for PhDs to only talk to PhDs, right? But if you think outside the box and if you start talking to other people and if you go to different types of conferences and seminars and you see other type of work that's not strictly academic, it's more things put into practice or even business type of conferences, I think that opens up a whole new world. Super interesting. And now circling back to some of your work in the energy access space, would be very curious to hear your perspective on what are some of the most significant challenges or barriers that communities face in gaining access to reliable and affordable energy? And how does Power for All address these challenges in its energy access initiatives? Sure. Well, let me start by saying that Power for All is a global campaign with over 300 partners worldwide. And we speak to 
end energy poverty through the use of decentralized renewable energy solutions. So that's mostly solar PV. But I think the main challenge in energy access is obviously ultimately money, right? It's the lack of funds to electrify these places. But it's shocking to us because when you're in the developed world, the conversation is about a transition, right? So it's transition from the current energy matrix to cleaner energies and how we need to do that to reduce emissions, et cetera, et cetera. When you look at places like sub-Saharan Africa, the entire conversation revolves around access, not transition, because you have countries like Uganda where half of the people don't have access to the grid, more than half of the people don't have access to the national grid. So that's a completely different conversation. And what we try to advocate for is these people can have access for the first time through clean energy. We don't need to do the business as usual approach, which is grid extension, which also costs a ridiculous amount of money given the geography, uh, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And then 30 years from now, say, okay, we're going to transition to cleaner energies, right? We can do it well from the start. The other thing is that we do a lot of work to show that if you electrify people with solar mini grids, it's actually faster and cheaper, right? Because this is not obvious. Like governments have a standard way of thinking, which is the rest of the world did it in this particular way. They extended the grid to the entire territories. We should do it the same. So you look at the electrification plants and there's little mention of decentralized renewable energy technologies. But in reality, when you think about the people that lack energy access, these are people that live in villages, not, not in the main cities. The, the main cities are electrified, but what you have is people living in rural areas that do agriculture. And for governments to extend the grid to those people, it's a ridiculous amount of money for the amount of people, right? So economically, it doesn't make any sense. It's not financially viable. The consumption of these people is not going to be enough to recover the costs. So we need to think outside the box. We need other alternatives. So to answer your question, it's obviously a financial issue. It's also a lack of awareness, I would say, issue of one, how important it is to actually electrify these people. It's not just the basic need, but as we're showing in one of our campaigns, we have a campaign that's called Powering Agriculture, and we show that productivity can increase tremendously by using decentralized renewable energy technology, which can give you irrigation, milling solutions, drying solutions, like all types of processing, storage, etc. Right. So it reduces the waste, it increases the productivity. And remember that these economies are primarily agricultural economies. Like they make that their main economic activity and the main source of employment is in ag. So electrifying these rural communities that do agriculture is a big deal. But what we kind of are playing with now is this new model of, of a partnership between a utility company and a mini-grid developer. Because when you look at the cities, okay, the cities have are electrified, they have power, the main utility serves the bigger cities. When you go like far out of the cities, middle of nowhere, let's say Uganda, 
then it makes the most sense to just use a solar mini grid because you're talking about a very small village. It doesn't make any sense to do the entire extension. You can have, you can just have a grid there. So you go, you take your solar panels, the batteries, do like the, your mini grid there and you connect the people. And, and that's the most efficient and least cost approach. But now we, started thinking like, what happens to all of these people that are in peri-urban areas? So they are near the cities, maybe three kilometers outside of the grid, but they are not electrified. They are not also like the typical rural customer, right? Because most of these people work in the cities. They, If they do farming, it's not the main economic activity. There's a lot of services in these villages. So like, what about these people? They don't consume as much as people in the cities, which might make the grid extension unviable, but they are also not the rural consumer. They are an in-between. So we figured that by doing a partnership between the utility company and the solar mini-grid developer, what we could do was to develop these consumers and turn them into higher consumption consumers so that grid extension makes sense financially. We did a pilot in the Mukono district of Uganda in which we selected a village that was very close to two other villages that had actually been electrified through the grid 10 years ago. But this village was unelectrified, by, but in socioeconomic characteristics, it was very similar to the other two villages. So we deployed a solar mini-grid. And what we did is what's called demand stimulation. So we go there. We not only connect people, but we also explain to people what's going to happen. We go house by house. We talk to them. We say, this is what's going to happen now. This is how you can use electricity. But we also run an appliance finance program. And this is crucial because if you want people to actually consume electricity, you have to make it easy for them, right? They need to have things to plug and for most of these people, buying appliances upfront is prohibitively expensive. But if you do an appliance finance program and they can pay month by month, then it makes more sense. And we targeted not residential consumers, but the local businesses, because we figured for them, appliances are going to be a money-making thing versus just consumption. So, so for a business, it's an investment and they can make more money out of this. So a lot of the businesses decided to to purchase chest freezers because imagine these were these were bars and restaurants that had no cooling anything right so so there was a lot of food waste all of their beverages were warm uh, were served warm etc so just having a fridge or a freezer makes a huge difference for them and well we did this program most of them bought appliances. They were all able to repay the appliances. They're actually, they're, they were making more money after they bought the appliances. A few of, of the customers actually were asking for a second appliance. But I think the most interesting thing is that before year one, 98% of the people in the village were connected, which is an incredible connection rate, really, compared to grid extension that it took more than five years for the grid extension villages to reach that level of connection. Basically, I think the difference is 
when you have a solar mini grid developing working, there's a lot of local work. There's a lot of people that interact with people in the village. There's local presence. There's this also appliance finance program, etc. So people know what's happening versus the business as usual approach where you just do the grid extension and, and nothing happens. People if they want to connect, they have to call or they have to do something themselves. To connect. It's not easy for them and, and maybe they don't understand the implications or the cost or whatever. So having local presence is crucial. Having additional support like appliance finance, it's also crucial to develop the customers, but also signal that we're here, like you can talk to us. It's easier than you think. And for a lot of people, I was looking at what their neighbors have done and see oh, it works for them, so maybe it's going to work for me, and you get that going. After we developed consumption, consumption was high enough. Now it made sense for the grid to take over and interconnect, right? Because now we're giving the utility company a profitable consumer. And that's what happened. We did interconnection at the beginning of this year, and the solar assets are decommissioned. And the idea is that you can take those solar assets and go to another village and just replicate this. And and this is a very fast way of electrifying people because it's a win-win. The government wins, obviously, because they have targets for electrification. The utility company wins because they get a profitable consumer. The mini-grid developer wins because for a time, at least they have a business going and people win because the uses of electricity are almost limitless their standards of living went up and the town they went from not having any entertainment to having a cinema to having like a, more bars and restaurants to receiving people from nearby villages to having a safer also environment because of the street lights longer school hours there are so many social benefits I'm going to stop here because you might have questions. That was amazing. Thank you for providing that in-depth overview. And I almost feel like I could stop the interview here. (laughs) (laughs) We can. If you you want, we can. (laughs) Super interesting. And I do have a few follow-up questions. And I'm going to break it down into first diving a little bit more into the community engagement aspect. And then I'm also quite curious in terms of how you structured the financing for, on one hand, the appliances, as well as how the mini grid developer managed to also secure those revenue streams. So on the community engagement front, my understanding is there are around five stakeholders. On one hand, you have the mini grid developer, then you have the utility company, then you have the small business owners, then you have the appliance companies, and then the financiers. Am I missing anyone there? Well, the government. The government is a big deal and and was a very important link because so we were operating in a territory that was under the concession of the utility company. And even if the utility company, I mean, they were not serving the village, but it was under their concession, right? So they have the right to serve them. Understood. But even then, the government was crucial because even then you need permits from the government to operate, even if the utility company says, yes, it's okay. Yeah. So could you provide some insight into the timeline for engaging these stakeholders? 
like which of these stakeholders did you approach first and like how did that process develop because the way i'm looking at it is there's so many different moving pieces so would be really interested to learn about like how those came together and in what order this was born out of a meeting at bellagio italy where a lot of the main stakeholders in the sector were present and we had started to develop this concept of integrated energy which is didn't have a place where to test it but we had been playing around this integrated energy idea for a while and by the way there are also other models of integrated energy that you know, I'm going to share in a second but but we were playing with this and saying like this makes sense theoretically right the fact that we can have both right the the a mini grid developer and a utility company collaborate and make things exploited their comparative advantages because obviously like the mini grid developer has all of these like local advantages and then the utility company has uh, advantages of scale advantages of lower costs advantages of access to capital at a much lower cost etc so we in theory this made sense but we needed like somewhere to test it and at Bellagio i think what what was very clear is that need to do it now if we wanted to convince governments that this was the route to take and at that meeting was when power for all said okay we have here funders so the main funder for this the, the funder was the rockefeller foundation and they were they wanted to test it so i think that was step, step number 1 is normally get the funds to do it this was a pilot so obviously we this had to be done with fundraising because we need to convince people that this made sense now that it makes sense there's interest from the government so now it could be more of a government financed type of thing or even private sector finance because it also makes sense for the mini grid developers etc but at that time we need to prove the concept so it was getting the money so rockefeller foundation was on board and then at that same meeting was when we were talking to people from different comp- like mini grid developers so equatorial power was the mini grid company the ceo of equatorial power also serves at the board of umeme that is the utility company so we had ties to the utility to the mini grid developer there was also energro an appliance finance company so we sort of like sat together and said okay let's do it and let's do it in uganda because it's where actually we have the most of the willpower to do it the utility company at uganda umeme one of the only two profit making utility companies in the entire continent so the other one is the one in seychelles so it was very important to have the approval and it was a private company now things are changing because the government is going to acquire is in the process of acquiring umeme but at the time it was easier to deal with a private company so we decided to test that but yes i mean step 1 is getting the money step 2 is getting the players step 3 i think this was the longest get all of the government permits it's license exemptions a lot of permits because you're doing work on the ground right you're building something and the thing with mini grids in africa is that they are regulated as if they were large infrastructure projects even though they're not they're not large 
but they are regulated as such. So there's a lot of paperwork that needs to be done, a lot of approvals and conversations, etc., that need to happen before you can start doing anything. So I think that was a big deal. The other thing that took a while was the pre-testing, because obviously to do this, we had to do an entire scoping exercise. We had to make sure this is the right site and what are we going to use as counterfactual sites? Because obviously, I mean, we can see what happens at the site, but how are we going to know that grid extension was not the better approach? We need to compare to a very similar site that had grid extension and we need to get the historical data for those other sites, etc. So that also took a while, the entire scoping, because obviously, as you can imagine, like there's not just lack of infrastructure in, in most of sub-Saharan Africa. There's obviously lack of information about the people that live there. So you go to census data and it's very hard to find these places. So you have to really do a lot of mapping activities and talk a lot to people and go there and, and see things by yourself. And in terms of the counterfactual, so what were some key findings in terms of the actual outcomes for why this approach is more beneficial than going the more traditional grid extension route? The grid extension route, what does is literally extend, the, like, like in the most literal possible way, it extend the grid. So you have access to energy if you want it, but no one's going to knock on your door, explain what that is, help you do anything. What ends up happening is that the uptake is super slow, right? So you see it in time, like the first year, I think one of these, so these are towns of around like 1500 people. And if, if you look at the connection rates, like the first year, one of these towns had three connections, like three like only three households decided to purchase this new thing. And for us, that's not like a viable business. Obviously, like if you work with mini grid developers, for them, it's crucial to get everybody connected as soon as possible because that's part of the business model, fast connections. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense for them to be operating there. You have a lot of capital, like you're sitting on a pile of money, basically. And so that's a big difference. The fact that we have local presence and we need to encourage people to connect because otherwise our business model makes no sense. That generates like much faster connection. So at the end of year one, we have 98% of the town connected. So that's one thing. The other thing is the grid, not only in Uganda, in many places of sub-Saharan Africa is weak. And that means that people don't get reliable power. So they have a lot of, blackouts, unstable voltage, and that's very problematic. And some people decide not to connect or to end their connection because they say, I'm paying for a service that's not working as you know it should or as I thought it would be working. And that's a problem. Now, that's something that you can also fix with a solar mini-grid. So another integrated energy model that's now being tested is the under-the-grid mini-grid approach in which you can have areas that have a weak grid, but then with the solar mini grid, you're able to improve basically the reliability. You make it much more reliable and then people just get what they need because they get it from the grid. And when that fails, they get it from the solar mini grid. That's another approach. But 
the people in the town were super happy because they were getting super reliable power. They were also paying exactly the same rate as you pay with a grid, which is something that we specified in our business modeling. We need to make it work with the same tariff that was 19 cents per kilowatt hour. Normally, these tariffs are subsidized. It's usually the case that mini grid developers need to charge more to make their business financially viable. But in this case, because we were doing this kind of like cooperation, we we showed in our business modeling that it's viable charging the same rate as the utility company charges. And that was a big deal. And I think that was one of the main reasons why the government, I mean, after seeing it work, after seeing it's the same tariff, and after seeing that people got connected so fast, are now thinking, okay, this might be a good idea. And it looks like we only have time for two more questions. Thank you for this conversation. It's been super informative. Would like to dive a little bit into the financial viability because as you said, this project has a lot of potential now for private sector companies to come in and scale it further into other similar regions. So on the business model front for the mini grid developer, Can you provide some insight into what those revenue streams look like and like what the relative costs were and how much they were able to recoup via the tariff they were charging the consumers? And then also, from my understanding, after the grid developer comes into the area, does the mini grid private company then like retake that grid or is it still going to be left in the area for consumers to have both? the grid connection and the connection to the mini grid? Okay, let me answer first in terms of business modeling. So what we did, we played with a few business models, right? So, and and these differ mainly in ownership, right? So like who owns what? There was like a mini grid led model. There was a utility led model. There was a flexible asset model. Ultimately, we stayed with the utility led model in which the utility owns the infrastructure so they pay for the infrastructure right obviously except for the solar assets right and the batteries solar panels and batteries just belong to the mini grid developer but all of the lines are paid for the utility company the meters are paid for the utility company and they do that it's much cheaper for the utility to buy those than than for the mini grid developer they work at scale obviously and ultimately they're going to interconnect so they're going to that's going to be part of their own infrastructure anyways so that that's part of what they're going to need regardless so they buy that then the mini grid comes with the solar assets electrifies connects that to the this thing like small network electrifies the village basically and once we're past a certain threshold the utility comes and takes over now you have two alternatives you can actually keep the solar assets right and provide more reliability like in the under the grid or you can take the solar assets out in our model for it to be cheaper we have to remove the solar assets because we needed to meet the 19 cents per kilowatt hour tariff. And you can only do that if you subtract that capex at the end. So you enter with a lot of capex, which are the solar assets, but then obviously they depreciate, etc. But then you subtract that capex at the end because you take them out. And that makes it 
cheaper because you can also use those for another side. So they last for about 20 years. I think they're good for about 20 years. So that means that you can, if, if you stay about two to three years in a side, that means that at least you can use it in five, five to six different sides. And that makes our model cheap. So if you want, what we were testing was the fastest and cheapest approach to universal energy access. If you want that, then I think this is the way to go. Now, obviously, this might not be the best alternatives for areas in which you have a lot of commercial and industrial activity. Like if you have factories that need to, and, and you really need reliable power, then you need to leave the solar assets, right? These areas are mostly villages where you have like the main businesses are bars and restaurants. So it's okay, even if the grid is not 100% reliable, it's okay and it serves the customers. But this is definitely the fact that you remove those assets from your CapEx at the end makes it much cheaper and, and viable at the existing tariff. Got it. That's a very unique approach. And I can see that adding a lot of financial plausibility to these models. And as a result, a lot of potential for scale. And now that we're coming to a close, would love to leave it open to you for any closing remarks and what is next for Carolina and what is next for this project? Sure. So what's next for this project is to be replicated in other sites. So normally you do a, a pilot and then you do replication and replication is not one other side, but at least five or six, ideally a bigger number like 10. And that's what you normally do before you do scale, because scale would be like 500 sites, right? So it would be like full electrification. So before you do that, you want to make sure that this was not a one-off and that this is an approach that actually works. So next step would be replication. We are fundraising for replication, but ideally we want to get is more government involvement. We do understand governments in sub-Saharan Africa do not dispose of a lot of money. But there is government interest because this is definitely an approach that has proven to work. We would also like to do it in other countries. There's obviously a lot of room to cover in Kenya, in Nigeria, in Ethiopia, DRC, Tanzania, you name it, uh, Rwanda. So there's a lot of countries that could also take advantage of this model. And But there would need to be a pilot first, like we have done in Uganda, and then the replication, and then ideally scale. So that's what's next. We're also working on other campaigns like the Powering Agriculture campaign. We're working on powering jobs. Powering jobs is super important because we were the first to provide a bottom-up count of the number of people directly employed by the decentralized renewable energy sector, which is really important, especially when it comes to talking to policymakers that they're super worried about jobs and and what if we transition to green energies and we're going to lose like people in Nigeria, for instance, Nigeria has a big oil and gas sector and they're very worried that if they transition, they're going to lose all of those jobs. But we're obviously thinking, but you're going to gain other jobs. But until you have a number, it's very hard to tell them, don't worry, we're creating as much as if not more jobs through the clean energy sector. So those are some of the campaigns that we're doing. And ideally, what's next for me is hopefully get to do this, get 
more awareness get to do this in many more countries and hopefully help meet some of the SDG 7 targets with which we're far from but I'm still hopeful that this can be done uh, and hopefully ending energy poverty soon so that we're out of business so the goal <laughs> is to be the goal of power for all is to be out of business <laughs> <laughs> because it. we really we really want to end energy poverty so we'll mm-hmm. be happy when we're out of business thank you thank you so much carolina thank for you, all the full work that you were doing and hope power for all does go out of business soon yes <laughs> <laughs> and with with people like you leading the charge makes me feel very hopeful And thank you for your time today and for all of the work you're doing. Thank you, Karen, for the opportunity and for your sharing your amazing platform. And very happy to be here. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Check out the episode description or show notes for more information on our guest. See you next time.